0: This podcast contains troublesome topics and in stories, including rape, murder,
1: and suicide. The listener discretion is advised.
0: Hey guys, thanks for tuning in. Welcome to episode four of Colts, Killers, and Cocktails. I am Vanessa.
1: And I'm Jen.
0: And we are in for a wild ride today, aren't we?
1: We sure are, so... Yeah, part two of Jonestown, and then Vanessa is also going to have a tale for us today. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you have any updates on your life that you want to tell us about?
1: So, my dad actually retired yesterday. How fun. Yep, it was his last day of being a cop. He served us for more than like 30 years, and yeah, so he's officially retired.
0: Aw, and where did he serve for?
1: He was a Indianapolis detective. Oh. So he is finally going to go into retirement and start his little woodworking business that he has. Oh, that's so
0: cute. So oh,
1: soon we'll be able to talk about that, but he has a little business called The Pensive Gentleman. So
0: Oh, well congratulations Ron. We wish the best for your woodworking business.
1: Yeah, happy retirement. Yes. And also, I was texting our friend Corey this week. Oh. And Corey, just so you guys all know, is one of my first friends I made in a restaurant. Um, He actually worked at TGI Fridays with us back in the day and actually trained me on how to be a bartender. So this is a shout out for Corey saying hey and thanks for listening. Hey Corey. So what's been going on with you this week?
0: Um, You know just living the dream. I've been trying to get back into the gym
1: life. Haven't we all?
0: (laughs) Yeah haven't we? But I had a little bit of a creepy experience at the gym that I kind of just wanted to pop up there. What happened? Not I guess it wasn't, like, super creepy. Like, I got this vibe. I was running on the treadmill, and this guy was, like, stalking me. Like, he kept walking back and forth, like, by the treadmill.
1: And there's no reason to walk back and forth, there right? Yeah. no reason. Yeah. Like,
0: stop looking at my speed. I'm going slow. Like, <laughs> so, and then I go to the weights, and he goes, like, right next to me
1: no. on the
0: weights. Like, he was nowhere around. Then I'm guessing he saw me, and he went over there. I was like, okay, dude, whatever. But then, like, this 18-year-old comes between me and him at the weights with like one of those long bars for like bench presses Mm -hmm. and we were not six feet apart honey we were like two feet apart (laughs) and I don't know it was just a weird experience but I guess that's what I get for like trying to stay in shape you know get creepy people follow me around and all that other stuff oh and they're grunting too I had a guy on the stair climber behind me and he was like oh oh Grunting every single step. I was like, I know it sucks, but we're all here. There's
1: we? no need to grunt. We're all suffering. <laughs> we
0: we all hate it here.
1: Oh, boy. Yeah. I just started working out, too, and it's been quite a journey. Mm, so... It's not fun. No, 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 no. Not at all. Well, um, are you ready to crack into Jonestown? Let's do it. Got my drink. We're ready to go. All right. So, Jonestown. This week, I'm going to be focusing, like I said last week, on the Survivors, and last week we talked about... I am so excited for your part two this week because I've literally been wondering what happened to everybody because you left us on a cliffhanger last Me week. too. I love so, this story.
0: Ugh, I'm so excited.
1: It is great. So if you looked at our Instagram, you'll see a picture of me sitting on the beach reading Seductive Poison, which is a Jonestown survivor story of the life and death of People's Temple member Deborah Layton. First of all, I just highly suggest that everyone read this book. I'm actually about to give it to Vanessa as soon as we finish recording. I had a hard time putting it down and I was literally on the beach. So I think everyone should check this out. It really helps you understand how normal people and their families get sucked into these cult mentalities and how it's hard for them to actually leave. So we're going to focus on Deborah Layton this week. Deborah Layton was born February 7th, 1953 in Utah. She was one of four children. She had a brother named Tom who became a doctor, Lawrence or Larry, who we're going to discuss way later, and Annalise. She was the youngest out of all the siblings, so she was constantly fighting for their attention. Her father was a scientist, and in 1957, they moved to California for his job. Her mother was originally from Germany, and her family actually fled to the U.S. during the war and brought only a few possessions because they were refugees. Her mother was very into art and very very smart back in 1953 her husband was going through a background check and part of that background check because he was working for the government was to actually look into the family just to make sure like there was nothing weird going on they weren't affiliated with anyone that was very fishy and when the grandma was being investigated she got very very nervous deb grew up with quaker roots and part of that was because when her mother's family fled from germany the Quakers were the group that actually helped them get to the United States. Quakers are very, very into nonviolence and peace, just in case you don't know a lot about the Quakers, which I believe played a really, really big role in Deb's thinking and the way that she perceived things. So, growing up, Deb received most of her attention from her siblings. Her father, again, was really, really busy with work, and her mom was withdrawn due to the guilt of her mother committing suicide. And then, when her older siblings started leaving and getting older, That attention was gone and she wasn't getting it from her parents anymore. So she started to act out in school and get in fights at around 10 years old. So, with that being said, she started drinking and she would actually take liquor from her parents' house and refill the liquor with water, which we all did as a
0: teenager. We can all
1: relate to that. But then she started getting really, really intense. She started doing drugs like speed and then mixing them with downers and eventually even got into opium. By the time she was in high school, she had ran away, lived with her friend's parents for stints of time because her parents just quote unquote didn't get her, which we all went through that phase, but she was taking it very, very rough. And since her relationship with her mom was so strained because of her mother's depression due to her grandma committing suicide, she always had a soft spot for people that couldn't really help themselves. She knew that she was fortunate with well-off parents, but she always wanted to help and be with the working class. Continued to fall out of control during her teens, during her teen years, and eventually her parents said it was enough, and they thought the only way to help her was to send her to boarding school in England. Oh,
0: I would love to be sent to boarding school in England. I know, Maybe right? I should have asked
1: that as a child. <laughs> <laughs> so there, she met her boyfriend, Mark Blakely, who was the good, popular boy. But with a new school, she felt as an outsider because everyone had known each other since childhood. And eventually, again, she has the same pattern of she beginning to smoke and act out, but not as bad as when she was in the U.S., but it's still not great. Can she do that at boarding school? Oh, yeah. I mean, one of my friends said that she went to a private school, and on her first day, she saw a girl doing coke in the bathroom. And I was like, oh, okay, like in high school? Awesome. Okay, no big deal. In the summer of 1970, she comes back just for the summer to visit her parents for her break. So while she's there in the 1970s during summer break, She is hanging out with her parents, and she goes and visits Larry and his wife, Carolyn, after Carolyn had heard a sermon by Jones that criticized the war in Vietnam. They were really, really behind this cause because Larry was trying to get out of the war due to being a Quaker. Because, again, nonviolence. He joined the church with a ton of college graduates. They stayed on just to work with Jones because they believed in his plight against poverty and being just prejudice against people, Caroline and Jones started spending more and more time together. Then eventually, Larry and Carolyn divorced. Jones was actually a big part of this divorce because he said he saw a distance growing between them. He actually set Larry up with another person from the church, Karen, who eventually became his next wife.
0: Didn't
1: he also think that
0: every man was gay or something? He did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's let's refocus on that for a second. Right?
1: But he's allowed to play matchmaker and divorce cool. people. Cool. Cool. Larry, like many other members, worked multiple jobs in order to be able to keep giving money to the church. Carolyn became Jones's, like right-hand woman. For example, while he was giving his hours-long sermons, she would hold things for him to pee into because he couldn't step away from the altar.
0: Whoa. What, like, did you have a
1: funnel or? I don't know you, if it was like a funnel situation or just like a bucket, but she would hold things for him just to release himself into. I feel
0: like it would splash back at you. I, like if you're just going straight into a bucket. Like yeah. Like physics, you just. It's go. ridiculous.
1: But that just shows you her devotion to Jones That's
0: and the type of devotion. stuff
1: that she was doing for him. Yep. So during the first service that Deb actually attended, she went there and all the people were talking about how selfless and how righteous this guy is, talking about his human rights accomplishments, which we know from the last episode, he did a lot to further human rights, which I am thankful for him about that. But they were talking about how all of them are very, very lost before finding Jones. Jones, during the sermon, spoke of a fellowship and how to rid the society of hatred, racism, and poverty. And that if you made the commitment to him, you would profit in this life and in the next ones. Because again, he believed in reincarnation. The people that didn't believe in him would become, they would come back as lesser things. So if you stayed around him, you would grow within his aura. Like you had to be near him in order to grow. That everyone that was there, because there's something greater in store for them. Gotcha. So he makes everyone feel very, very valued Ugh, you're lying, and loved man. and they have a purpose in life. Mm-hmm. So immediately, Jones tries to get her to leave her parents. He said that she was an important link in their organization and he knew about her loneliness and that she was misunderstood and she wanted him to be one of them because she was special.
0: I kind of get how she would fall for this. Oh,
1: yeah. you. I mean, getting you think about it. She's been wanting attention for years and she's finally getting it. Right. But again, she's in high school. So Deb goes back to England. She goes back to boarding school. But while she's in boarding school, she continuously is receiving letters from the People's Temple. And this is happening on a weekly basis. How he's working all the time and what they were doing. She was really, really impressed. And again, she felt loved. It's what she wanted for her entire life. So you can see how that's enticing. Right. She came back over summer break of the next year and she brought Mark, who she's still dating. Nice. They both ended up joining the temple. Mm. They decided to enroll in college in the United States while working for the temple. She began to actually clean up her act, which amazed her mother because her mother has seen her struggle all throughout her childhood and her teenage years. Right. So let's keep that in mind for later. Okay. As soon as she officially joined the group, that's when the control began. And again, like you said earlier, he told everyone that men are homosexuals except for him. And because of that, I think it's because he didn't want an allegiance to anyone but him. Right. He wanted total control. He banned sex between the members. Married men could not have sex with their wives. They couldn't even stay with their wives. And he actually made Deb marry Mark in order to extend his visa.
0: But she can't have sex with
1: him. No. So they never actually even consummated the marriage.
0: So, uh, so he can play matchmaker. He can play Cupid, but only to a certain point. Like All you guys can do is hold hands.
1: Right. And it's really sad because even in the book, she talks about how she really loved Mark and really wanted wanted to to spend time with him. And, you know, it's just crazy. But for the People's Temple, a lot of these things were made up. So you'd have people record things on tape talking about how they wanted to kill the president or they wanted to do something illegal or even admit to, like, molesting a child or wanting to kill one of their friends just to prove their faith. And a lot of members did this because, again, Jim's never going to use this. He's just doing it as a test. To show that we have faith in him. Wow. Yeah. So is this
0: like videotape or like cassette tape or? Do
1: you, do you cassette have... tape. That's. It's still crazy. And they'd have to sign affidavits too. So you'd also get it in writing. Wow. Yeah. During college, while they're doing all these courses and they're still doing the socialism courses, they're going to his weekly meetings He would make them do paramilitary training at night to prepare for this nuclear war that he thought was going to happen.
0: What is paramilitary
1: training? So they'd have to do things like jogging every single night. They'd have to practice navigation to make sure they're up to date and okay with everything. Guerrilla war tactics, which is, you know, like surprise your enemy and all that. And they would have to memorize Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto.
0: Wow, so they were all on really
1: good shape oh yeah i bet they were in the best shape of their lives but they're also not eating right they're not sleeping they're not getting time to themselves it's just crazy um going back to the relationships if people were caught having sex they would be forced to stand up in front of the entire congregation and they would have to admit that they were actually thinking about jones when they were with their husbands ew that's how much this guy wanted control over people. So
0: he would catch them having sex?
1: Even if another member did, you know, like, and told. Because, again, you have to write up your negative thoughts. You're encouraged to tell on your friends, you know. So if someone else reports it, then he makes everyone hear That's that so little gross. spiel.
0: This is so a uh, handmaid's tale. Oh. This is what I'm thinking, like, with with the men involved, I right? Yes, God.
1: So they believed that they were only as strong as their weakest link, which I can see, but... Again, that puts a lot of pressure on everybody else, especially whoever the weakest link is. Um, They were trained to put their faith in Jim, never question him, and also let go of their desire to live as a nuclear family. So, you know, forget about kids, husbands, and really just go for Jim's vision. In 1973, the meetings started becoming way longer and more frequent, and they had to do more recruiting in their free time. For example, they had this thing called the Planning Commission, And they would meet late on Saturday evenings from 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. in the morning. And then they'd also have to meet Wednesday from 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. in order to discuss discuss decisions for the church. They had Saturday and Sunday revival meetings. Wednesday night, they had teach-ins. And then Monday night, they had socialism class.
0: Man, they were always just doing something. Like, you don't get a night to relax on the couch, watch TV. No,
1: they're always together. Which, again, was part of his plan to have control over people. If they said they wanted to leave the congregation and not be involved anymore, Jim would threaten them. He would say that they'd be taken care of or they'd die or disappear in a mysterious way. And it was the same way for thinking negative thoughts. So even if you doubted the temples, people's temple, he'd say you'd probably get in a car accident. Something bad might happen to you just in order to put fear and doubt into people. And that's
0: scary, too, because, I mean, a lot of these people are already brainwashed. So Oh,
1: yeah, I can't even imagine. Um, so as Deb is moving up through this group, she's given more and more responsibilities. Uh, she was on the divergence Committee, for example, and one of her main jobs in that was to create social change by drafting letters in support of legislation. So she'd write to the legislators, but she'd make it from like other people and be like, oh, I heard the People's Temple are doing a lot of great things in the community. You should do this to pass this law and so forth.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: In 1974, Mark, her husband, is sent to Guyana. He's sent to help set up the promised land or, as we know later, Jonestown. Mm -hmm. 1975, Deb is offered a position actually at a surgical hospital. Um, In college, she decided to become a surge technician. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, She was super confident. She felt like she was where she needed to be in life. She was excelling. Hospitals wanted to work with her. But Jim saw this as a threat. So he called an emergency planning meeting. He had the members, and again, these are the elite members in this meeting. She was acting um, with treason. So they yelled on her, they spit on her, they humiliated her, and they told her that she needed to give up her job offer and work for the church.
0: Yeah, because she's excelling at her career, so. So
1: she does this. She gives up her job offers and is working for the church. baby girl. At this time, the church is still continuing to grow. And that's when Jim starts incorporating all these things to have control, like fair game. So if you leave, we can pretty much do whatever we want to. you. We can hassle you and you can't trust outside people. So once you join, you need to cut off all of your contact with your family members, your loved ones, any of your friends. During this time, her mom actually ended coming up to a service and she ended up joining the church and leaving her husband. (gasps) So now she has her brother in here. She has her mom in this group. So, The more family members you have, it's harder and harder to leave. Yeah. Jim ended up raping Deb Uh, twice.
0: uh, Here we go.
1: And like we said last week, he said he was doing this for her. When she refused him for the third time, he had a meeting and he made other people out her. And he made it her fault by saying that she would kill herself if he didn't sleep with her. And that's why he did it.
0: You know, I'm kind of surprised that she would even like try to deny him in the first place because
1: he's the ultimate leader. The way that she described it in the book, it was more of like, it was her first time. He just kind of put his authority over her and she didn't, she was so scared. She didn't know what to do. Gotcha. After this, she is ridiculed by everybody and she feels like she needs to prove herself now. So she's forced into working again. Um, with the church and doing more things for the church. She ends up gaining his trust. So he puts her on secret trips to open up bank accounts for the church in different countries. So it's not traceable in the United States. This was very, very secret. For example, they had to wear disguises in order to look older and meet with foreign bank officials and be very, very careful that they weren't followed anywhere. She was one of Jim's top people. He trusted her. When everything started coming down, like we talked about last week, where they're getting all the scrutiny in the press and things were going crazy, he called most of his followers, including her to Jonestown and her mother. Oh, so now we're going to go into Jonestown. Oh yes. So as you know, it was in Guyana or Ghana. Everyone pronounces it different. I watched okay. a lot of British documentaries, and they're like Guyana, so I want to be like them. So I'm going to keep saying Guyana. Potato, potatoes, right. potato, right? <laughs> <laughs> and again. Jim picked this because a lot of the people in this country speak English because it used to be a British territory and because it was one of the best places to survive this nuclear war that's going to happen.
0: Right, right, right.
1: The goal there was to make a utopian society and to make everyone very, very happy. It was in the middle of nowhere, literally. A lot of people think it's more of like you get off a plane and you're at Jonestown. This wasn't the case. It was very, very remote. So, you would land in Jonestown, or sorry, you would land in Georgetown, which is the capital of Guyana. There, they had one group house that they would use as a base whenever they had to do things in the capital. And then you had to take a 25 hour boat ride. (laughs) Yeah, 25 hours. Then, after you get off the boat, you have to take another truck into Jonestown.
0: You would think that they would just have like a plane service to go into Jonestown. Right. All of these people.
1: Well, there was, but a lot of the members when they came in, that's the route that they had to go because it was the cheapest.
0: 25-hour boat ride. I can't even do like a 12-hour car ride. Right. I, how I would do
1: that. A lot of the members, when they were describing Jonestown, the ones that at least had been there before Jones even got there, stated that it actually got way worse when Jones arrived. That's because when he arrived at Jonestown, they had to work longer hours. They had to have long meetings all night, again, because Jones, he likes to talk. He likes to have people pay attention to him. And they described Jones as being very, very paranoid. And then that in turn, making everyone else paranoid. Deb first arrived December 15th of 1977. And as soon as she arrived, all of the letters that they were carrying for people from the United States, they were searched in order to be censored. Uh, they had to give up all of their possessions and they were issued new possessions. So they're stripped pretty much of their identity. Even things like medication. For example, at this time, her mom had been diagnosed with cancer and a very aggressive form of cancer. Oh, no. They took away her mother's cancer medication. (gasps) She later saw it in Jim's house. No. Yeah, that's how bad it was. Gosh. So, like I said, there was a huge influx of people at this time that had joined Jonestown, so there wasn't enough food for everybody. The food was honestly not even great. A lot of the times they had bugs in their food, which eventually they just decided to not pay attention to and eat. Everyone lived in the cabins of the same sex, but they were very, very crowded. It was hard labor every single day. You had to clear fields every day. You'd wake up at 5.30, work until about 6 o'clock in the night. And you'd have to have evening agricultural meetings, sometimes lasting until 2 a.m. And you'd also, of course, have your socialist classes with tests every single week.
0: You know, this reminds me of the movie Holes. That movie <laughs> with
1: yes, I totally remember that movie. <laughs>
0: I just rewatched that maybe like a week ago. So and this good. Is literally holes.
1: I mean, yeah, it's, it is a very good, yeah. Parallel. I like it. They would put people on a thing called the learning crew and you'd be on the learning crew. If you weren't following orders, you were complaining or just being slow. And when you were on the learning crew, you weren't allowed to speak to anybody, not even the people on your team. You had to eat separate from everybody, sleep in a separate dorm, and you would have to work double time compared to everyone else. So instead of like walking to your next field to clear, you'd have to run.
0: Oh, screw that.
1: Yeah. not <laughs> So nobody wanted to be on that. No. Everyone was responsible for reporting on each other in Jonestown. And he would put spies in groups on purpose. So if you and I were in the same dorm and Jones had me as a spy and I was like, man, I really don't want to be here anymore. This sucks. And you didn't report me. I'd go back to Jones and report you.
0: So like I said earlier, handmaid's Tale,
1: Yeah. Nice. Literally, everyone does not trust anyone. Wow. Jones installed a speaker, and he would talk over the loudspeaker nonstop just to talk about, again, his politics, what he believes in, and give nonstop updates on the U.S., which would usually be incorrect. Every night at Jonestown, someone was confronted. Someone even talked about a certain incident when one night a 60-year-old man fell asleep because they had been at it all night. And Jim had that guy's son put a 10-foot boa constrictor around his neck and have everyone scream why they hate him. What? That was his punishment.
0: And did he die?
1: He did not die. He actually survived. But this just shows the type of things that he would do to torture people. Oh,
0: my God.
1: They also had a thing called a box, and it was six by four feet. It was in the ground. It was buried in the ground. And people were kept there. That broke the rules. They were in the ground. They had no sound, no light. You have sensory deprivation, which eventually makes you hallucinate. Just was not great. You're buried alive. Yeah, you're literally buried alive. And the people, again, that were very outspoken and didn't believe in Jim, they were just sedated. That's the way that he took care of him. He had a medical tent. And if people wanted to leave, they were defectors or, again, just had issues with what was going on. He would keep them sedated so they couldn't leave.
0: Oh, my
1: gosh. As things started to get more and more intense, he would have things called a white night. And everyone had to come to a pavilion during the white night. And it was like a simulated attack. So he would get on the loudspeaker and yell white night, white night. And everyone had to come to the pavilion. And then that's when he would have the practice of having them drink some type of cocktail in order to commit mass suicide. What,
0: what type of cocktail?
1: He would just have like a huge vat of liquid and state it's the time we need to, you know, take our own lives in order to stand up for what we believe in. And if you think about it, These started happening more and more each week. Mm -hmm. It didn't become a random thing. So people get used to just, okay, uh, we're going to like pretend like we're going to commit mass suicide now. And this became normal practice. Oh my gosh. Deb, while she was here in Jonestown, she was very miserable. She was always looking for a way out. And Jim finally gave her a mission to go into the Capitol and get blackmail on an embassy officer.
0: Okay. So we have Holes, we have Handmaid's Tale, and now we have Hunger Games. Right. (laughs) We got a combination of all three. Let's go.
1: So while she was at the embassy, she was trying to get an official alone in the room, but she was never alone. So she actually had to go back the second day in order to meet with an official and tell her that, tell him that she wanted to leave, that she needed to get out of Guyana. She arranged her escape. She escaped on June 14th, 1978. If you want to read it very in depth about her escape, again, read her book. It's amazing. It's amazing. Eventually, she got back to the U.S., and there she was an advocate for trying to get people out of Jonestown, but she was widely ignored. Her lawyer that she hired, about a month after she arrived in the U.S., submitted an affidavit to the news and many government agencies, and Congressman Leo Ryan picked it up. Leo Ryan was, again, a congressman. He was known for being very proactive. He was getting complaints, not just from her, but from numerous people that were concerned family members, and he finally decided to take action. So he went to Guyana with reporters and family members to check on the welfare of the members. After many, many um, discussions with Jones, and Jones refusing to let him in, Leo was finally allowed in with some of the family members and the press. While they were there, they had food that included meat, which was never really a thing unless there was actually people there. Did it have maggots in it? There was no maggots, no. So they had a huge celebration. They were able to look and see how they lived, quote-unquote, day-to-day. Survivors later tell us that Jones prepped them for weeks on what to say, how to act, what to do.
0: I was going to say, I feel like they're full of shit.
1: Yeah, and Leo actually gave a speech during this, and he was talking about how wrong he was. And it seemed like everyone actually really loved living here. And then during one of the celebrations, uh, one of the members, Vernon Gosley slipped one of the reporters a note. He tried to put it in the reporter's hand and the reporter wasn't really catching on. It dropped to the ground and the reporter was like, Oh, you dropped something. And Vernon's like, no, 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 that was your piece of paper. You dropped it. Take the hint, buddy. Yeah. So he took the hint. he shows it to Leo Ryan and they're like, we have to get these people out of here. So they announced that they were going to take anybody that wanted to leave. And, of course, as soon as this happens, Jones gets very, very confrontational. Even before then, the press described him as being very, very just weird in his interactions. Um, He was lethargic. He seemed like he was on drugs because he was a very heavy drug user. He had taken amphetamines to stay awake and do all those long speakers Mm -hmm. and things like that. So he's starting to freak out. They have a plane already there. And they have a second plane coming because there was people that wanted to leave Jonestown. While these people are getting rounded up in order to leave, someone tries to assassinate Congressman Leo Ryan. So Mm -hmm. he's like, we got to get out of here. We all have to leave. So they go to the airstrip where they landed. One of the people that was quote unquote, wanting to leave was actually Larry, Deb's brother. Oh. He's still in the cold at this point. Oh,
0: no. Go, Larry.
1: Yeah, so Larry's saying, I can't do this anymore. I want to leave, too. Good. So while they're boarding the planes, another truck comes up, and there are armed people from Jonestown, and they start opening fire on everyone that's trying to leave, and the reporters and the family members. Mm. Larry is actually a very big part of this, too, because he's also trying to kill people. He had a weapon on him, and he was going after the people there. Wait, Larry was a backstabber? Yep. Larry was trying to avenge Jonestown.
0: Remember about 10 seconds ago when I was like, good for you, Larry. Right. Fuck
1: you, Larry. Gosh, no. When they start firing, the people that were shot, there was five people that died. There are a lot of people were injured, but five people that died were, of course, Congressman Leo Ryan. No. There was a photographer. His name was Greg Robinson. He worked for the San Francisco Examiner. Cameraman Bob Brown and reporter Don Harris from NBC, and there was a temple defector, Patricia Parks.
0: Man.
1: Everyone else ran into the brush of the jungle in order to just wait and hide until it was time for them to um, finally clear out and go. Larry Layton ended up getting 18 years in U.S. prison for Good. his act in all of this. He should have life. Fuck him. <laughs> yeah, so 18 years. After this happened, we go back to Jonestown. Uh, someone comes back and they tell Jim Jones that Congressman Leo Ryan has died. And this pushes Jones over to the edge. He thinks that everything's over, that now the United States is going to come after them. So again, he calls a white night drill. But instead of it being a fake drill, it's actually real this time. Oh, no. Yeah. They put potassium cyanide in flavor aid and purple flavor aid on november 18 1978 more than 900 people died the people that refused to drink the concoction were injected with it parents were forced to give it to their children people were held at gunpoint until they actually died with jones we know that there were people that didn't want to do it and there was also people that did
0: I know you guys can't see us right now, but my mouth has literally been dropped for the past like minute and my hand over my mouth. I, I can't believe that.
1: Yeah. And the thing was too, in Deborah's affidavit that she submitted a month after she left, she stated she was afraid a mass suicide was going to happen. I mean,
0: I don't blame her. They had literal drills for it, but
1: yeah, the United States is warned.
0: You have so many drills. You just think, oh, this is just another drill, like a fire drill, tornado drill, right? But oh
1: my gosh. Yeah. So that's the story of Jonestown.
0: Oh, oh gosh. You're, uh, I mean, I guess there's no other way to leave it.
1: There were a couple survivors. There was a couple, um, there was an older woman that hid under her bed. And of course, a lot of the guards, after they forced everyone to drink it, they just decided to not. And so they are still alive. Jim Jones ended up having a gunshot wound to his head. So we don't know if he actually did drink the cyanide or if he didn't. And if you don't know anything about cyanide, it pretty much simulates drowning. So uh, it's a it's not the best way to go, which is also really, really sad.
0: Man, I really wish that Jones would have just suffered.
1: I wish he would have most. done it first himself.
0: But Yeah, you would think like lead by example, but obviously he didn't want to die. Mm-hmm. But so, you said self inflicted gunshot wound to the head or just a gun We don't shot?
1: know if it was somebody else, but it looked like from the angle and everything, it was self inflicted.
0: What a piece of shit. Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah. So, wow. So that's Jonestown.
0: That great- Whew. Need some cocktails after that. Right? Oh my gosh.
1: Oh, and speaking of that, let's talk about our cocktail. Let's do it. Jen, since you
0: were the one that picked the cocktail this week, would you like to.
1: Well, since everything happened at Jonestown and they were drinking purple Flavor Aid, in order to make it happen, I decided to go with a purple cocktail tonight. So what we are drinking is a French 75. It is made with purple gin. It's actually called Empress Gin, and if you're in Indianapolis, there's only one place in Indianapolis that has this gin. It's called Con's Liquor. I love Cons. Oh uh, yeah, they literally have everything. <laughs> they really do. I was like, oh my gosh, this is the best place ever.
0: There's one on 56th Street too. They're
1: what? Really So it's Empress Jen. There's a little bit of simple syrup. There is lemon juice and champagne, which I'm not going to lie. First time I've ever had it. It looks very pretty. We'll post a picture on our Instagram. We
0: definitely will. And guys, I had no idea that we were drinking a purple drink because of Jonestown. Jen just came over and she was like, oh, yeah, we're drinking purple because of Jonestown. I was like, oh, okay, whatever. But now I know it's because of the whole, you know, mass suicide thing. But... The drink does not have cyanide in it, or I don't think so anyway. Does not? No. Not not yet anyways. I don't know. But it is delicious. And if you are a gin drinker, then you will love this.
1: If you do not like gin, don't even try it because...
0: Please
1: don't. There's definitely... The champagne doesn't mask the gin taste and neither does the lemon, so... But, I mean,
0: if you like mimosas that much, maybe you can get past it. I don't know.
1: Try it. See what happens. Do it.
0: If she couldn't come see him. All right. So my episode this week is a wild ride. So just buckle up for it.
1: I'm ready. Let's do it.
0: Okay. In 1948, Little Rock, Arkansas police received a unique phone call. There was a woman at a bus station who would just not wake up and get off at her stop. She was still breathing, but out cold. The bus driver tried waking her. Other riders, they even called police. They tried waking her, but got nothing. Obviously, something was wrong with her, so police called paramedics and rushed her to a local hospital. The next day, the woman passed away without ever regaining consciousness. When doctors tested her blood, however, she had an abundant amount of sleeping pills in her system. So not long after, in 1949, police get another phone call. Only this one is for a missing person, and it's in Long Island, New York. Family members wanted to report their relative missing. Now, whether it was their mom or their grandma or their aunt is unclear, but she is 66 years old and recently
1: engaged. Wait, recently engaged at 66?
0: Right, so there is hope for anybody, baby. That's right. <laughs> hear that,
1: mom, there's still hope.
0: <laughs> from her, or her family members received several typed up letters from her claiming to be living the life in Florida. But there were two problems with this one, she didn't own a typewriter. Again, this is in the 1940s or 50s. And two, she didn't know how to type. While Long Island police are looking into this missing person, on February 28, 1949, Grand Rapids, Michigan police get a phone call from, from some concerned neighbors. See, they had not seen their young female neighbor or her child in a few days, but they had seen a couple staying at her house. They just wanted to be sure that they were all okay. But it turns out they were not okay. They were the furthest from okay that they've ever been. In honor of Valentine's Day, I want to tell you about a loving killer couple. I'm going to tell you about Ray Fernandez and Martha Beck, AKA the Lonely Hearts Killers. Have you heard about them?
1: I feel like there's been multiple like Lonely Hearts Killers, so I don't know if it's them in particular.
0: There really are a couple. Um, Yeah. Episode two, mine was named like a Lonely Heart Killer. Right. So I feel like. I don't know, anything that relates to love, but this was a couple. So, Raymond Fernandez was born December 17th, 1914. He was born in Hawaii, but grew up in Connecticut, and he was from a Spanish descent. So, during his teen years, he wanted to explore and maybe get a little bit closer to his culture. So, he moves to Spain to work on his grandpa's farm. And he meets a woman in Spain, and her name is Encarnacion. Robles, and he fell in love immediately at 20 years old, which, okay, 20
1: years old. Yeah, you're in love with whoever you date at first. Right.
0: But they have kids together, and he served in World War II, and they were honestly a normal family. So at the time, he gets out of the military and decides he wants to provide the best life possible for his little family. So he decides to come back to the States and look for work. He boards a ship which were still popular travel at that time. Now we would take a plane. And as he's getting on this ship, a steel hatch crashes into his head. Oh. Mm-hmm. Resulting in a fractured skull and frontal lobe damage.
1: Oh, no. You know what they say about frontal lobe damage. You
0: know what they say. So the frontal lobe actually controls your impulse. Yes. Your sexual behavior, your social behavior, and your judgment. Maybe that should
1: be on like a first date application. (laughs) Do you have frontal lobe damage? Yeah, they ask everything else, like ever been hit in the head or had a concussion in your frontal lobe. Put that in your Tinder profile. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So he's obviously in the hospital for quite some time after this. And some were very quick to see his personality change. Example, uh, shortly after he was being discharged, he stole clothes from the ship's store. When police asked why he did it, Someone with a pristine criminal record, family life, everything. He says, I don't know. I can't think. I can't say what I did. I just saw other men putting a towel or two in their bags. So I thought I'd do the same. Only I couldn't stop. So they weren't really like with his first sentence because they think that's a bullshit excuse. So he spends one year in jail. While he's in jail, he makes a friend and it's his cellmate. And his cellmate is all about voodoo and black magic.
1: Ooh.
0: So he begins practicing this constantly. So when he was out of jail, he could use this
1: with the ladies. Because that's what all ladies are into. Right, yeah, I forgot. That's the first thing I ask when I meet somebody.
0: Exactly. So while Ray is over here dancing to the jailhouse rock, let's dive into his future lover story, Martha Beck. Martha was born on May 6th, 1920 in Florida. And just to give kind of a perspective, um, Ray is five and a half years older than her. Unlike Ray, whose childhood was pretty unremarkable, Martha didn't have the best life. She was always overweight as a result of a glandular issue that she was diagnosed with at a young age, and she was bullied for this. And she also went through puberty at age 10. Oh, my gosh. So she had her period, she had big boobs, everything like that. And honestly, she was bullied again for it. Yeah. Poor kid. Yeah. Yeah. And if that wasn't enough, buckle up again. Her brother raped her. And when she was actually brave enough to come forward and tell her mom, because that would be so difficult to do, her mom beat her.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: Her mom said it was her fault. And (sighs) then in consequence, her mom would then follow Martha everywhere. If any boys even looked at her, she would threaten them, which I'm not sure if this relates to like guilt of your son raped
1: your daughter right she's trying to overcompensate now for it
0: exactly there's something here that i'm no psychologist but there's something here that ties so essentially martha was a loner and had no friends because of her mom so fast forward a few years she winds up going to college and she studies nursing and she couldn't find any local jobs due to her weight so she moves out to california to become an army nurse and I don't know the difference between like Florida weight and California weight. I don't know, but she had to move to, Florida, or to California. And because of her mom's psychological torment, she rebelled in California. She wanted attention from any man she could get, and she became a bar rat and hooked up with the different soldiers all the time. Got it. Okay. Eventually, as suspected, she got pregnant. And she told the guy, and he didn't want anything to do with either one of them. She even threatened suicide. and It didn't work. And he was like, nope, go ahead and go kill yourself. Wow. Mm -hmm. So, heartbroken, she moves back to Florida just to, I guess, move closer to her support system and just get away from it all. But her support system is like, dude, you're pregnant. And she's basically like, oh, this belly I was married to a wonderful soldier, but he died in war. And then she proceeded to show them a ring, which she bought herself. Of course she did. Of course. So she has her baby, and the community felt so bad for her being a new single widow with a child, so they publish an ad in a local paper. This apparently was compelling to a local bus driver named Alfred. Not long after they met, he knocks her up again. Oh my gosh. Mm Mm-hmm. But this time instead of not wanting her, he actually wants her and he proposes and she accepts. So now she's so happy. She's finally going to get the love that she's always wanted. That love was not long lived. She ended up or they ended up divorcing six months later, not even long enough to pop out baby number two.
1: I wonder why they divorced.
0: I have no idea. Okay. No idea. I'm guessing she was, Or he, they just didn't work out. Right. Now she's really devastated. She's a single mom, two different baby daddies, and still no love. She starts buying romance novels and movies to escape into a fantasy of what she wanted in her own life. But that still wasn't enough.
1: Well, it never is because those guys are perfect. And then you go to the real world and it
0: just, it's never going to match up. If you compare your life to The Notebook, you're going to be sad for the rest of your life. That is true. Ryan Gosling. Ryan Gosling. I love you. (laughs) So let's get back to Raymond or Ray who's just been released from prison for his theft and is now a self-proclaimed voodoo master. So he moves to New York city and starts answering lonely hearts ads. And from my understanding, lonely hearts is somewhat of a modern day bumble. Women place ads of what they're looking for romantically. And then they leave either their phone number. So men can call them. Or their mailing address so men can write them.
1: Kind of wish it was still like that a little bit.
0: Kind of, but I don't know how I would feel about leaving my address.
1: Oh, no. Yeah, never mind. Scratch yeah. it. I take it back.
0: Maybe a P.O. box. Right. So, with Ray's new quote unquote black magic powers, he started to respond to multiple ads. And he would wine and dine these women. He would build trust and then completely rob them of all their money and their possessions. And almost every female didn't report this because they were so embarrassed. You know, they put their heart on the line and they got duped. Right. So he even took one of his lonely hearts to Spain to meet his family. And her name was Jane Thompson. And he actually introduced them to his wife and kids. Because remember, he's still married.
1: I forgot he was still married. He's still married. Oh, what a jerk. Spain.
0: So I'm thinking that there was like a language barrier here. There had to
1: be like how would his wife even I don't even get it, like
0: Exactly. Like I feel like he was just like, This is my friend from America, she wants to visit. (sighs) Unless they're cool with polygamy and or polygamy. Yeah. Yeah. But um yeah, so um these two, Jane and Ray, they actually stayed in a hotel in Spain. And one night um one of the fellow hotel people They heard arguing, and then they just see Ray beeline out of his hotel room. Mysteriously, Jane died under suspicious conditions. That's so weird how that happens right after people fight. Crazy, right? Rumors of being poisoned floated around, but if this was ever investigated into, it was never reported. Ray inherited all of Jane's belongings with a forged will, and that's the end of that.
1: All right, poor Jane. I feel for her. Alright, PJ.
0: So when Ray gets back to the States in 1947, he answers an ad for a nurse in Florida named Martha Beck. Martha was filled with joy when Ray answered. It was her first and only Lonely Hearts response. No! He ended up writing her, and she would constantly check her mailbox. She would even carry his letters around with her.
1: Okay, that's kind of cute.
0: Kind of, but a little bit like obsessed. Weird, yeah. yeah. So he claimed to be a successful businessman from New York, and Ray asked for her to send a lock of her hair in the mail. And instead of being completely creeped out by this, Martha was flattered. Like somebody's asking for my hair. I'm special.
1: No, now my hair is uneven. What are you talking about? <laughs>
0: uh, and he wanted this hair to perform voodoo on it. So after, you know, the Harrison and everything, um, Ray travels to Florida to stay with Martha for two weeks. And he's honestly a little disappointed when he met her. She's 250 pounds and had two kids. And she didn't obviously include that in the ad. But that didn't matter. There was one goal, wine and dine, Rob, get out. Right. At the same time, something was different about her. She catered to him 24-7. She basically worshipped the ground he walked on. So he has to go back to New York. And again, she threatens suicide. She goes up to New York and stays there for one week. And she came back to Florida. And she was actually, like, remember, she was a nurse. She got a job at a local um, Pensacola hospital for children. Oh, wow. Good for her. Yeah, good for her. But, you know, she left for a week without telling anybody. Right. So she was fired. And um, so she shows up on race front porch steps with bags and two kids. And so since she was, you know, kind of different in his mind, he said, okay, you can stay here, but the kids got to go. What? Yeah. So she responds with no problem and gave her two kids to the Salvation Army.
1: You're lying. Hashtag parent of the year. (sighs) Why do people always pick men over their children?
0: It's just, it's not ever worth it.
1: Mm-mm. So he kind of thought saying,
0: you know, get rid of your kids would make her go away. But since it didn't, you know, he's kind of like, okay, this chick is really dedicated to me.
1: You know, now he knows he has total control.
0: Exactly. So he tells her his scheme, all of it. And guess what? She gave zero fucks and wanted to help. Of course. She even said, I'll play your sister and we can scam together. That's that's so gross. Exactly what they did. Only problem with this, Ray was her love and she did not like sharing. Whenever women would stay with them, she'd make sure that they would never quote unquote hit a home run, a.k.a. sleep together.
1: I bet Ray was mad about that.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Talk blocker. And when they did, she would pop shit. One of their scammers was named Esther Hinn. And Ray did his thing, you know, he winded and dying her. And she was one of the people that wrote into Lonely Hearts, obviously. And they were married within a week. What? With his trusted sister being the only witness. Oh, uh, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Ray has immediately made her beneficiary. Then whether Martha spilled the beans or not is unclear. But Esther found out about Jane Thompson, the woman that died under suspicious circumstances in Spain. Okay. So Esther is basically like, fuck this. And she leaves. Good. And she escapes without her car and a few thousand dollars stolen. But at least she has her life.
1: Yeah, good for her. You go,
0: Esther. After Esther leaves, they think, well, on to the next lonely heart. That's when Ray responds to his next lonely heart, Myrtle Young. Myrtle Myrtle is my turtle's name, just in case anybody cares, who was from Arkansas, which is one of the people I mentioned at the beginning. She quickly moved in with Ray and Martha. Since Martha was so protective over Ray, Myrtle became super frustrated. She wants alone time with her boyfriend, and Martha wasn't having it.
1: I'm sure she does. hmm
0: Both Ray and Martha agree that she, quote, protested too much. So they drugged Myrtle with sleeping pills and carried her onto a bus to Little Rock. Oh no! Which my thing is, if I was a bus driver and somebody carries a knocked out woman onto my bus seat, I'm I gonna be asking questions. I say I have questions. Yeah, yeah. We gotta talk. We, yeah. So before heading back to the Big Apple, they stole four thousand dollars from Myrtle. When they do get back, it's time to get back to work. So they respond to sixty-six-year-old. No. Janet Janet was a religious woman who had a spacious apartment downtown Albany. She wrote into Lonely Hearts despite her friend's warnings. So since she said she was into religion, Ray used that to his advantage. He would talk about God and how church was important to him as well, which she swooned over. So Janet agrees to have Ray come visit her. So Ray and Martha head to a downtown Albany hotel to check in. At the hotel, they checked in as Mr. and Mrs. Fernandez, which great brother and sister, right?
1: Yeah.
0: Then Ray and Martha both show up on Janet's doorstep with flowers. Usual wine and dine happens. And not too long after Ray proposes to Janet. And wouldn't you know it, she accepts.
1: What's the age difference? Do we know about how much older she is than him? So she's 66
0: and now I'm guessing probably about 20 years. Right. So down. he's still
1: like this hot young thing right, 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 to right. her. Yeah.
0: Don't quote me on that. But yeah, so she's a lot older. They start discussing their great future they're about to have. So Ray's tired and he goes to bed and he wakes up to screaming. I won't allow you to live with us. You're the most brazen bitch I've ever met. Janet storms into the bedroom. And Ray gives Martha the you're ruining it look and says, keep it quiet, no matter what. He joins Janet in bed and goes to sleep. Ray then wakes up not too much longer with blood splattered everywhere.
1: No. Martha
0: obliterated Janet's skull with a hammer. I would say I'm surprised, but I'm not. No, we we all saw that coming. Maybe not with a hammer, but not his first murder, obviously. So he panics for a moment, and then he's like, okay, gotta get my shit together, and he starts scrubbing the room clean. Right. The couple buys a trunk, puts Janet's bloody body in it. Then they take it to Ray's actual sister's house. And Ray's like, hey, sis, I found this great trunk at a store, but I don't have room for it. Can I store it in your basement for a few days? And she agrees.
1: A dead body in her basement? She just
0: thinks it's a trunk. And she has...
1: Doesn't it smell at all? Like, I'm not a big expert. Maybe they use lye or something like that, but...
0: Honestly, that's how I know we're best friends, because that was my first thought, too. Like, what did this smell after a while? So, Ray comes back five days later and moves the trunk to a house he rented. Ugh. He then buries it in the basement of this house and covers it with cement. And, of course, he steals the $6,000 and writes letters to her family the family that said she didn't have a typewriter. Next, they're off to respond to a lonely heart from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Her name was Delphine Downing. She's actually a young widow, unlike Martha, which she claimed herself to be towards the beginning with a young child named Raynell. And since he knew that she had a child, Ray says that he loves kids. And Delphine and Ray are corresponding for two weeks, and then she agrees to have Ray come visit. He asked if he can bring his sister, and she's like, of course, I would love to meet your sister. Yeah,
1: if you bring the sister, it's non-threatening. No,
0: not at all. So the pair move in pretty quickly, and after a couple of weeks, Delphine is, you know, getting a little agitated. They move in, so she's like, where is this going? So she walks in the bathroom with Ray in it one day and he has his toupee off and she sees a huge scar on his head, which was from the steel hatch. And she calls him a liar and accused him of fraud. Cause I mean, she thinks he's this young hot shit, you know? Good. I'm
1: glad she did.
0: Yeah. So Ray gets pretty frustrated by this and he's like, you know, honey, I'm sorry. Let's talk. I'll make you a drink. He laces the drink with sleeping pills.
1: Doesn't surprise me.
0: Ray starts crying because mom won't wake up. So Martha gets angry and strangles her, but surprisingly doesn't kill her. And Ray is pissed at Martha saying Delphine is going to wake up and see bruises on her daughter's neck and flip shit. And she might even call the cops on them. So thinking quickly, the only logical thing that Ray thinks to do, he takes a blanket, wraps it around a pistol and, And shoots Delphine right in the skull, killing her instantly.
1: Seriously? Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Ray and Martha wrapped the body in sheets, took her to the basement, dug a hole, and put her body in it. Over the next few days, the world's greatest couple drains Delphine's savings and loots her house. But remember, Raynell is still alive, and she is constantly crying because she wants her mommy And Martha is, like, trying to comfort her, saying, like, I'll be your new mommy. And she's like, fuck you. I hate you. Right. So Martha does her only logical thing in her mind. And she draws some bathwater. And she holds little Raynell under it, fighting her struggle and drowns her. They dig a hole next to her mom and puts her in it. So they got both of the girls taken care of. They're almost done looting everything. So Ray says, Hey babe, you want to go see a movie at the movie theater?
1: Seriously? Out of everything, that's what they want to do?
0: So they go have their date night after murdering a little girl. Meanwhile, the concerned neighbors call the police, as I said at the beginning of my story. Police take them both in for questioning. Why are you staying at their house? and Where are Delphine and Raynell? On February 28th, 1949... Ray confesses to everything.
1: Really? I didn't think he'd be the first one to crack. Mm -hmm.
0: But the thing is, he confessed to 17 murders.
1: 17? Mm Mm-hmm.
0: And he signed a 73-page confession. And so did Martha as well. The only bodies that were discovered are the ones that I've told in this story. Now, you might be asking, again, why would he do this? One, police said that if he told the truth, He'd only get six years with good behavior. And number two, Michigan didn't have the death penalty. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. New York did. Since Janet was killed in New York, they didn't want to be extradited there. And then after he confessed, police basically said, fuck you guys. The New York governor and the Michigan governor had a phone call. Michigan agreed to drop the charges for Delphine and Raynell so they could be extradited for Janet's murder. Which is sad that, you know, he never technically got convicted of their death, but family's going to be happy. So when Ray hears this, he's like, just kidding, guys. I didn't kill anyone. I only said that so I could take the blame and protect Martha. Meanwhile, Martha is over here freaking out, saying, I'm afraid of the electric chair. Well, that's too bad, Martha. You shouldn't have killed anybody. So at trial, Ray and Martha shared a lawyer. And usually this is deemed unethical I was and unfair. Say, not yeah. a good idea. Yeah, usually it's unethical and unfair. So prosecution evidence were the confessions, the medical examiner for the bodies, the friends of Janet and uh, Janet's landlord. Right. And their defense was, well, the police lied, and they said that he'd only get six years, so this is a false confession.
1: No way.
0: I swear, some of these defenses are the stupidest defenses. I'm sure you've heard a lot more stupid, but. And so Ray is quoted saying, "As a man, I could take jail better than a woman. Yes, I killed Janet. Or uh, yes, I killed Delphine and Raynell in Michigan. Did I kill Janet in New York? No." So, Martha also goes on the stand and tries to tell the story about how her messed up childhood like kind of shook effect on her and made her do all this thing.
1: Sympathy vote. Being
0: raped by her brother, which sucks but I mean the jury had no pity for her. So there's 44 days of testimony on August 29th, 1949 Ray and Martha were both sentenced to death at Sing Sing Prison and obviously these Lonely Hearts killers got huge media attention and they wrote all about Martha and all about Martha's weight. And Martha actually saw all of these articles and wrote the editors telling them to quit making fun of her. But it's like that's all she cared about. Right. So they were both eating up this attention. There was a rumor that Martha was sleeping with a death row guard. And Ray found out about it. And he actually wrote into the courts and wanted his case dropped for, quote, mental torture beyond
1: endurance. Really? Mm-hmm. You wouldn't think he would have really cared. You
0: wouldn't think that, but apparently he did, and I just think he was just trying to, you know, survive, use anything he could. But I guess they had a love-hate relationship that changed daily. So, just as a little interesting tidbit, Ray's last meal was an onion omelet, french fries, chocolate, and a Cuban cigar.
1: I, I didn't know cigars were part of the deal.
0: I think that's a little bit extra. Or I'd be like, four
1: <laughs> bottles of wine. I would literally get so shirkated. <laughs> <sophisticated. Carry> bored. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. Martha's last meal was fried chicken, French fries, and the most disappointing of all, a salad.
1: Seriously? I would never
0: have a salad as my last meal.
1: No, not at all.
0: Nope. So, on March eighth, nineteen 1951, only one and a half years after sentencing... They were both put in the electric chair. Ray went first. His last words were, I want to shout it out. I love Martha. What do the public know about love?
1: That was, really, I just can't get over it because he wasn't even really crazy about her when they dated.
0: He wasn't, but he loved that he, you know, she catered to his every will.
1: I guess that's true. She pretended to be a sister on all these dates and
0: got all this money. So, and also it was probably a little bit of media attention. As Martha was about to leave her cell, she said, my story is a love story, but only those tortured by love can know what I mean. I am not stupid or moronic. I am a woman who had a great love and will always have it. Imprisonment in the death house has only strengthened my love for Raymond. Gag me. Gag me hard. But her official last words sitting in the electric chair were so long that's it
1: but that's so eerie to me there was one guy i forget who it was and his last word was french get it because like french fry ah i was like clever but yeah
0: (laughs) so they were both dead and kind of like another fun little tidbit the executioner got paid $150 per per prisoner for his expertise.
1: To flip a switch?
0: Yeah. So, and I guess they, you know, put the water mask on or whatever else.
1: Have you ever seen an electric chair?
0: I've seen like, well, I guess in movies, not like in person.
1: Okay, we'll go out. There's a prison that's near us in Mansfield, Ohio. Ohio, the Mansfield Reformatory Prison. And they actually have an electric chair there. It's crazy just to see it in person. Really? Yeah. Ooh. That's where Shawshank was filmed. Can we go tomorrow? If COVID allows, but Let's I do it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so there was actually a movie made about this whole story in 2006.
1: Oh, so we're having a movie night soon is what you're saying. Exactly. And it's called
0: Lonely Hearts and it starts John Travolta. And I actually watched it.
1: You're lying.
0: I, what? You, I had no idea about this. So it's a great movie. But they Hollywooded the hell out of this. Well,
1: they always do. So
0: an example was, first off, you know how Martha was overweight. Oh,
1: of course she's not. Jared Leto's in this. I just Googled it.
0: Girl, it's such a good movie.
1: And like, Selma Hayek. Oh, my gosh. And
0: even with John Travolta, though. I'm just like, okay, let's do it. I'm
1: watching this on Valentine's Day, on Sunday.
0: <laughs> It'll be romantic. And that's when this episode comes out. But Martha's actress was skinny and pretty.
1: Obviously. Well, yeah, I love Selma Hayek.
0: Yeah. And uh, number two is when Jana was killed. So she actually was just sleeping in bed with Ray. In the movie, uh, Jana was shocked while they were having sex.
1: Oh, that makes a better story. Exactly.
0: So I still recommend it. But that is a story of the Lonely Hearts Killers
1: i love it and happy valentine's happy day
0: valentine's day all you creepy cocktail cult and killer fans
1: i still can't get over jared leto i love him so much i love john
0: travolta so much
1: oh my gosh john travolta is another great actor that i can't believe i've never heard of this movie or this either. case like
0: well i was looking up documentaries to watch over this because that's one of the first things i do right and there's actually a few movies made about this. It was, there was one in the 1970s. I think there was one in the 80s. And then John Travolta graced his presence in 2006.
1: And you can rent it on Amazon Prime for $3.99. I'm looking at it right now. So
0: And you can cut this part out or you can watch it for free on an illegal website.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't do LimeWire anymore. I've ruined my parents' computers in the past.
0: Hey, it's not my computer. It's Cisco's old computer. <laughs> I don't
1: care about it. <laughs> there you go. Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much. That one was amazing and great and very proper for the week that we're in. So So happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Yeah. Are you doing anything for Valentine's Day?
0: Uh not too big into the holiday. It's kind of like a
1: Hallmark holiday. Yeah.
0: So probably just gonna get a nice steak
1: in my belly. Yeah, I'm I agree with that. that. I'm getting a massage for myself. Are you gonna get a mimosa with it? I didn't I don't know. I think I'm going to not going to a super fancy salon just kind of like a regular salon so you should like plead to them like i'm single and it's balanced just please let let me do it yeah so we'll see but it will be good but well thank you guys for listening we appreciate you and especially we just had some visitors that we found through our anchor app in germany so Shout shout out to germany the philippines canada and of course the united states um, we love that you guys are listening to us and we hope you follow us on Instagram at Colts Killers and
0: Cocktails.
1: And again, if you have any stories or just want to DM us on anything that you want to see, just let us know and we'll add it to our list.
0: Heck yeah. All right. Well, we will see you next weekish guys. Thanks so much again. Bye. Bye. Hi everyone, Vanessa here. I just wanted to tell you about my sources that I used for Ray Fernandez and Martha Beck, aka the Lonely Hearts Killers, aka the worst couple in history. So I found out about them on Murderpedia, of course. I also used criminallyintrigued.com, crimelibrary.com, and the Electic Collection on YouTube. There's about a 15 minute documentary on them. And also just to kind of get a better understanding of how they, you know, wine and dined everybody, I watched The Lonely Hearts um, that was made in 2006. It's a movie and it stars John Travolta. I totally recommend it. Thanks. Bye.